The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are in the middle of a series through the the letter of 1 Peter. Now, this letter that Peter wrote back in the first century, it's an epistle that revolves around the mercy of God. Really, that's the whole thrust of what Peter is trying to communicate. And what he's saying here is that God's mercy essentially has two properties. The first property is that God, God's mercy meets you where you're at. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says that you were called out of darkness by God's mercy. Now, this means that God has found you in darkness. That's where you were. That's where God's mercy found you, but his mercy brought you out of it. You see, you had nothing to do with it. It had nothing to do with your capabilities, being good enough, having the right doctrine, or, or embodying the right lifestyle that got you out of darkness. It was God's mercy that found you and brought you out. Now, this, is, this part of God's mercy is very counterintuitive for most of us because we predominantly live in a meritocracy. Now, meritocracy is, is basically the, the concept that you get what you earn. If you do good, you receive good. It's, it's a reward system that's based upon your ability, your accomplishments, and your successes. But this is not how God's economy works. In God's economy, it's the foolish. It's the undeserving. It's the unworthy who receive his mercy. Now, this is what makes mercy, mercy. See, mercy finds its way to those who should not have it. And with this type of mercy, there's no prerequisites, there's no boxes to check, there's no hoops to jump through. The only need, the only prerequisite that there is, is to acknowledge your need for this mercy. Right? This is the key characteristic of Christians. Christians are people who are unashamed 
about how badly they need God's mercy. See, a lot of people come into Sacred City and they're slightly offended by the fact that we confess our sins together each week. Right? They look at this, why, why are you guys admitting to all this nasty stuff about yourself? Don't you have any dignity? Don't you realize that you guys are making yourselves look bad? See, because Christians are unashamed about how badly we need mercy, we have a freedom to confess this. It allows us to come out of hiding. We spend a lot of our lives hiding from the truths about ourselves. I think a lot of us, I would say most of us, if not all of us, have these, in, these voices inside, this internal dialogue that is constantly telling us that we're not good enough. But God's mercy allows us to confess that, to come out of hiding, to put what's true out in front of us, but it also meets us with another property, the, the property of mercy that transforms us, that, that the mercy to, to confess what we're like, but at the same time acknowledge that God's grace, his mercy has found us out because he desires us, not because we're pretty. We've already cleared that up. There's nothing special about us except for God and the way that he looks at us. God's mercy finds undeserving people. God's mercy is for the sinner. It meets us right where you're at. That's the first property of God's mercy. The second property is that it's transformative. That as God's mercy finds you, it changes you. It changes your worldview. It changes your outlook on life. It, it tells you that you, because of Jesus, have an incredibly bright future. It changes your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations. It changes you for the better. See, and, and the main thing that happens here is you become less self-focused and more focused on God and others. It frees you up to joyfully serve. See, this is the only way. You cannot be a servant unless you have experienced God's mercy in this capacity. Otherwise, everything you do is trying to please others. But when we find God's mercy this way that meets us where we're at and changes us, transforms us, it frees us to joyfully serve. Now, the biblical word for this, what's happening as we're transformed, it is to be sanctified. And, and what this means is that we become more like Jesus, that we grow more into our full potential. Now, this doesn't come as a condition for mercy, right? Mercy doesn't say change or else. Mercy meets us where we're at. And then because of mercy, we are changed. It's a cause of mercy, now, this means that growth and change will be happening, and sometimes you don't even realize that you are being sanctified. There are going to be times in your life that God is at work changing you, making more, you more like Jesus, and you have no idea what's going on. However, there will be times 
and changes in your life that God is wanting to do that he wants to cue you in on, that he wants to make you a part of that change. You see, sanctification is like a dance with God. God could pick you up, set you on his toes, and sort of wheeled you around like a rag doll if he wanted to, leading you, guiding you, changing you. But a dance is sweet when your partner responds, that you're, inact, you're interacting together, and that's what sanctification is like. It's, it's a coming together with God. It's a, a dance with God. It's so much more enjoyable, more meaningful for you to put your hand in his and yield to his leading. Now, there is one place in your life that this this passage specifically is speaking to, that God wants to change you, that God wants to sanctify you, that God wants to change the way that you interact with authority in your life. Because the way that you yield to authority shows what you believe about God. See, Christians are not anarchists. We are not rebels without a cause. Scripture says that God has, God who is the ultimate authority has placed various authorities over us and delegated power to them. And so this mercy that we tap into, the mercy that meets us where we're at and then transforms us, one of the things that changes about us is the way that we respond to authority, the proper authority. And so we've seen this last week and this week and next week we'll see the same thing. It's a reoccurring command that Peter is bringing up. It says, be subject. Now last week we began unpacking this. Um, and, And really we could say that we're sort of in a mini-series here about authority. Um, If you missed last week, we really laid the the framework for what this week and next week builds onto, so I would encourage you to go back, listen to the podcast. You can find that in the iTunes store uh, or or on our website, scmoline.com, and you can listen to previous sermons. And I want want to encourage you to do that so I I don't have to repeat myself, because that's no fun for me or for you. Um, but last week, just to, to cue you in on this, Peter began with a 30,000-foot view of what it looks like to respond to civil and governmental authorities. He says, be subject to all human authorities. And now this week, he's going to move in to something that's a little bit more close to home, a little more intimate here, and speak about a boss-employer or employee-employer relationship. Now, as we dive into this passage, I want to provide a little bit of historical background because a lot of times there are, are, there's language that we don't understand when we're reading Scripture, and so it's helpful to understand the original context and what's going on. And so let me, let me do a little bit of this historical background for you. The first century, economy, the economy functioned differently than what we experience today. Now, you'll see this in the language that's used in verse 18 when, when Peter starts out with, servants, be subject to your masters. Now, we wouldn't use that language um, in our everyday conversation about the employee-employer relationships. That, we, don't, we don't call our boss our masters. That's not the language we would use today. See, our economy functions in three Classes. There's the upper class, the middle class, and the lower class. 
And for us, in our, in our culture, our society, the majority of people find themselves in the middle class, so to speak. There's some who are upper, some who are lower, but the majority of our population finds itself in the middle class. Now, back then, there were also three classes. It's just the classes were distributed differently. In the first century, the upper class was made up about 1% of the population, the landowners primarily. These were the people who were wealthy. They had power and influence. They were culture makers and shapers. And below the 1% upper class, there was a, a slightly larger, but not very big, middle class. Now, this middle class would have been primarily made up of, of merchants and artisans, still very small percentage of people actually fit into this category. And so that leaves the majority of people finding themselves in the lower class. Now, the lower class people were, were viewed as servants. They were mostly laborers. They'd either do general, general labor or they'd find themselves working in households for these upper, uh, upper class, middle class people. And they would have various responsibilities. But the thing that made these people kind of associate with the, the, the lower class wasn't so much that they were poor. Because a lot of these servants, a lot of the people who were in the lower class made a good living. The thing that made them part of the lower class was the fact that they didn't have power. that They didn't have influence over the culture. So though the, the lower class was by far the majority of people, now we're talking like 80 plus percent of the culture being lower class, though they're in the majority, they didn't have a lot of power and influence, and so they're viewed as servants. Now, as Peter is writing this letter, almost everyone that he's speaking to would have been considered to be in the lower class. And so these words that Peter says isn't just for a small group of people. This is really speaking to the church at large. And his words to be subject to to yield to the authority of their masters is something that would have hit home for a lot of them. See, Peter, it's interesting. Peter here isn't telling them, though they're the majority, he's not telling them to buck the system, not, not to rebel, not to, not to push back on it. He's telling them, give into it. Like, follow the sort of social norms here don't, don't go causing waves. Be part of the culture. And a lot of people might look at this passage and say, wow, Peter, like there's a, you're obviously going to talk about injustice here. Why are you being so passive? It seems like that anyway. See, the interesting thing about Peter here, he does not twist his theology to cater to the desires of man. See, Peter could have said, well, hey, guys, you know what? You're co-heirs with Christ. We've already talked about earlier on in 1 Peter 1, this inheritance that awaits for you where you are basically royalty, so why don't you just start acting like royalty now? Peter doesn't do that. Peter says, follow this specific norm a society, if you are a servant, subject yourself to your master. Now, in this passage here, 
verses 18 through 25. What Peter aims to do is shape the Christian's conduct as servants, as employees, that they would be honorable and winsome. Now, I didn't realize this until this morning. I was, I was in my study. I was praying through this passage, going over my, my notes. I was like, why, why would Peter say this? Why would Peter tell him to just kind of fall in with the norms of society when it comes to this sort of socioeconomic status, these classes? Here's why. Here's what I believe. Peter was teaching his people how to be a sacred city. People was teaching Christians what it looks like to be part of the larger context of culture while still remaining distinct in some manners. And here's why. Because this is the way a city is renewed. See, the instructions that Peter is going to give his church, it's not just about keeping the norm. It's not just about not making any waves. Peter has a bigger vision for God's church. His vision is for the city to be renewed. And one of the primary ways that our city can be renewed is by faithful workers going into work as servants. So we're going to follow along with Peter here through this passage. Now, he's going to talk a lot about work. I mean, this is predominantly what the whole topic's about. It's about work, bosses, employee, employers, all of that stuff. And I think just in doing a general assessment, most of us miss these, these internal and spiritual implications of our work. See, our work is deeply spiritual. And it doesn't matter what you do. You could be a custodian, you could be an accountant, you could be a teacher, you could be whatever. Your work is deeply spiritual, has eternal implications. See, I think what happens, most of us treat our jobs as a means to an end, a way to support our family, a way to support our, our hobbies, to travel, to, to, to live the lifestyle we want to live. And because of this, we have a small view of the work that we do and the people that we work for. Before I was a pastor, I was a car salesman. At times, I struggled with this idea. It doesn't mean that I don't struggle with it now, because sometimes I stand behind the pulpit, and it's like, what am I even doing here today? But as a car salesman, it was especially hard, because the reality is, what I'm doing is exchanging people a piece of metal for money, right? It's like, this piece of metal is going to rust in a few years anyway. What's the point? And so for me, it was easy to reduce my job down just as a thing I went to do every day, a way to pay the bills, a way to, to support the lifestyle that I live. But as time progressed, I began feeling convicted about the way that I was viewing my job. And actually, it had a lot to do with um, my fight club, pressing in on some things, uh, the way that I was viewing my work. We, we, and this is a little plug for Porterbrook. This was a time in my life I was going through Porterbrook and my, the, the cohort, the fight club that I was in, was saying, hey, Sam, I, we identify that there's, for you, that you're not viewing your life as a sacred life that's meant to be lived in honor of God to everything word or deed done in, in the name of Jesus. And so they pressed in on me a little bit about that. 
I began to, I realized that that's what I was doing. I was reducing my work down as just something I had to do. I couldn't shake what Paul says in Colossians 3, 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name of Jesus. See, Christian, you need to realize the work done in the name of Jesus is far more significant than doing just menial tasks. So I began asking myself, what would it look like if I was working, if I was being a car salesman for the sake of Christ? Right? I started asking, what would it look like if Jesus himself was a car salesman? So I began intentionally doing things that are atypical of your uh, stereotypical car salesman. I, I was honest. I thought I was always honest, but I was intentionally honest now. I was hospitable. I went the extra, uh, the extra mile to make sure that the people that I was working with felt welcomed, that I, I made sure that they were important to me, not just not just because they had money that I was hoping to get and have that in my paycheck, but because they were an image bearer of God. They were created in the image of God, and then they had dignity, honor, and value, and I wanted to, to, to honor that. I meant being a good listener, sitting down, hearing what, hearing what their needs were so I could get them the right automobile, but just being a friend to them. See, this meant that I, I had to begin caring more about the person that I was working with than the car I was trying to sell. And you know what that meant? That meant deals would fall through. That meant my, my job would get harder. It wasn't so cookie cutter. It wasn't so clean, black and white. It meant that now my job was marked at the messiness of relationships. But in doing this, God gave me a unique opportunity to minister to people, both my coworkers and the people that I was trying to sell cars to, and to bring Jesus into the dealership. Honestly, I think I was a way better missionary when I was selling cars than I am as a pastor, right? Because, because as a, a, a car salesman, I had access to people who would never step foot in a church. It gave me a lot of ministry opportunities. And so in this sense, I saw my work became more about a paycheck and, and more about serving Jesus. Right? For a lot of people that I interacted with at the car dealership, that was the closest that they might ever get to Jesus. So in that light, I saw this, this work my work became so significant. And, and whatever you do, you have the same opportunity. There are people you get to rub shoulders with. There are people whose stories you get to hear when you're in the break room, when you're on the job, going job site to job site, that only you have access to. God has placed you there in their life to be a missionary, to, to be Jesus unto them. And so in that sense, your work has an incredible significance. So some of you need to wake up tomorrow, get dressed, go to work, and do it for Jesus. You're not punching a clock. You're not, you're not earning a paycheck. God has sent you there as a missionary. 
And I really want to dig into that part. And that's an important part that if we want to be part of a sacred city, that we must learn how to embody. But this is not really what our text is about. See, our text today is about when you go to work, when you're being Jesus to other people, not in like a weird idolatrous way where you're trying to save people. You can't save people. That's Jesus' job. But when you're going as the hands and feet of Christ, when you're going into your work as a servant who does good, excellent work, and you get treated poorly because of it, See, I'm talking about embodying a posture says, that says, I'm here to show you what Jesus is like, even if it means I suffer at my job. And to do this, it entails us to do, to, to do the right thing, to be respectful of all, to be hardworking, to be servants. So this is what Peter starts with here in verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. See, Peter is going back to authority here, and he says, be subject to your boss. And what he does, he acknowledges that there are two kinds of bosses out there. There is good boss, and there are bad bosses. And what Peter does to characterize these two, he says a good boss is one that is good and gentle. Now, it's a joy to submit to that kind of authority, is it not? I remember second grade being much more enjoyable for me than first grade was because Mrs. Neerham was way more good and gentle than Miss Hassel. It's, it's an enjoyable thing to give yourself to an authority that is good and gentle. Right, that's when, when Peter's command to, to, to be subject to such authorities, like, yeah, I think I can do that. Not so bad. But then he flips it. It's not just the good and the gentle, but also to the bad, to the one who is not good and gentle, to the one who is unjust. See, a, a bad boss does not function with goodness. They tend to want to bend the law, be dishonest. They want to take advantage of people. They're not gentle. They tend to be heavy-handed. They motivate with fear and intimidation. They're very ungracious. So Peter says, I realize there's two types of bosses out there, and you are to subject yourself to both. Now, in those days, changing employers was a lot more complicated than it is today. See, when you were a, a servant, when you worked for someone, it's very likely that your father did and your grandfather and then your kids and their kids would probably stay serving that same family. And so there was a history. It was hard to break away from your master. And so this is why Paul says, be subject to even bad bosses because it's very unlikely that you can find a, a different one. Now, that's not necessarily the case today. In fact, even when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, 
He says, if you were found as a servant when you were saved, remain as a servant. But if you have the opportunity to be freed, right, to find a new employer, take that opportunity. And I think there's wisdom in, the, in that for us today, that if you are subject to a bad boss right now, it does not mean that you must stay that way forever. If there is opportunity for you to find a good and gentle boss, you should, by all means, look into that, pursue that. Do it prayerfully. Do it with the counsel of your missional community and the people who are close to you. But you don't have to be stuck in that bad relationship. See, but there are those who have no other options, specifically the original audience here, who have no other options, that this call to be subject to these bosses, even if they're bad, stands for them. And here's why. Verse 19 and 20 lays this out for us. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, Peter is saying to those who are subject to bad bosses, it is a gracious thing for you to do this. Now, notice he's specifically speaking of unjust suffering. He's He's not giving license for you to be a bad employee. He says, what good is it if you sin? If you're a bad employee intentionally and get punished for it, but, but, but it's honorable, it's a gracious thing that if you go into work for an unjust boss and you do so with respect, and honor, and submission. There's no gain for you to sin and suffer. See, if you're suffering because of sin, something has to change. See, in this case, if you're suffering because of your sin, you you can't cut out the suffering without first addressing the sin issue, that you must repent and believe the gospel. If work is hard because you're being a bad employee, that means you need to change. Here's how you change. You lean into the gospel. That you have been forgiven of all your nasty works, your sin, but you have been saved for good works to go be a good employee. But on the other hand, if you are unjustly suffering, if you are, if you are doing good but you are still mistreated, it is a gracious thing for you to endure. But we have to ask ourselves, what kind of good things would lead you to be getting mistreated? What would cause this in your life? Here's a few things that are sort of big umbrella things that, that, that why you might be unjustly suffering. First of all, if you're refusing to break the law, if you're refusing to violate civil authority at your boss's, at your boss's instruction, right? maybe he's telling you you need, you need to cook the books. Right? Maybe... He's telling you, I was talking to somebody, well, that's irrelevant, but, but he's asking you to do something that's in, 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 unethical, unethical. 
to break the law, to, to veer away from the leadership of other authority that's above you. Another way might be to, to decline to go above and beyond in a way that would compromise your other responsibilities, specifically your familial responsibilities, both to the church of God, God's family, and to your biological family. Or in the other case, if you're observing the Sabbath as God has commanded you to and your boss doesn't like it, he expects you to work the nine to noon shift. If that's a thing, I don't know. Three hours doesn't seem worth it. See, an unjust boss will try to get you to yield to his authority at the neglect of the other higher authorities. See, but it is a good thing for you to not compromise on other authority to please your boss. This is what it looks like to do good. The reality is when you do good and your boss doesn't like it, there's probably going to be some whiplash here. They're going to start giving you grunt work. They're going to increase your workload. You'll be treated differently. You may, they may even become hostile toward you. Why? Because you're doing good. It's not because you're sinning. It's not because you're being a rebel. It's because you're yielding to the proper authority. Now, obviously, the original audience was facing this type of employee-employer relationship. Otherwise, Peter wouldn't have dressed it at all. And I believe that there are some of us in this room that are facing the same exact thing, that you're being treated unjustly because you're not yielding to the right authority, or because you are, actually, is probably the right way to say that. And so it isn't so shocking because today's culture and the culture of the first century are both similar, that the culture is hostile towards Christians. See, it's not so much that culture is opposed to what you profess. It's opposed to you living out the life that you profess. Now, you can explicitly see that even today with some of the discussion that's happening around religious freedoms. Secular people are okay with designated worship times and venues, right? As long as religion is kept to a certain day of the week at a certain time in a certain location. But the issue they take with it is when people are living out their faith, right? This is the life that Christ has called us to, that, that our faith is not something that we just profess. We don't just come together and, and say a bunch of words on the screen on Sunday mornings. We embody this in our day-to-day -day living. This, what I believe transforms my life. So our life is done in submission to the proper and worthy ultimate authority, Jesus Christ. And this happens even to the degree that if we have to suffer unjustly. Now, twice in this passage, Peter says it's a, it's a gracious thing to suffer in such a manner. What does that mean? Well, I think it means two things. By doing good, you graciously cover up the sin of your employer by enduring through hardships and suffering unjustly, you are respecting and honoring your unjust boss in a way that gives them what they don't deserve. 
See, if your boss is like that, they, they don't really deserve to be followed. But it's a gracious thing that even though, even though they're corrupt, even though they're unjust, to honor them, to give respect to them. See, that's what it means to give grace. Now, in reality, it sounds painful, it's undesirable, it's very hard to do this. But by being a good employee, you are showing your employer what Jesus is like. By enduring through hardships and unjust suffering, two profound things are happening. The first is that by being gracious, you are giving your boss a taste of God's grace. There is nothing sweeter on earth than giving someone else a taste of the grace that you yourself have tasted. It's precisely what you're doing when you interact with your boss. You're showing them grace that Jesus has showed you. Now, the second part of this is it's a gracious thing for you to do this, that actually it's God's grace in your life that your work situation is challenging. Karen Job says this. She's a commentator on this passage. She says, God's special favor rests upon the righteous sufferer of injustice further enabling that one to behave in a manner that is commendable by God. It is a grace for you to suffer. Why? Because more grace gets heaped upon you so you can enter into those difficult situations. Now, there's a bunch of baloney going around in Christian circles that says that God only gives you what you can handle. No. God will put you in hard situations. He'll put you in situations that grind you down and wear you out that you're like, man, this is way above what I'm able to deal with. But That's his grace to you. Because in that, there is grace upon grace that meets you, not only to, to, to meet you right where you're at, but to sustain you, to help you, enable you to live in a manner that God calls you to. So yes, this is a, a gracious thing for us, but it's incredibly difficult. But look at verse 21. Look at how verse 21 starts. For to this you have been called. That's probably not what you wanted to hear. Peter is saying to a life of unjust suffering, you have been called. And, what, and when he, he's saying this, he really blows it up because it's not just unjust suffering on, on account of your boss, but unjust suffering altogether. As a Christian, you will be persecuted. You will be marginalized. You will be treated unfairly. But this is the life that you've been called to. Now, if there's one verse that destroys the prosperity gospel, right? The gospel that God wants to bless you lavishly with health, wealth, and, and everything to be perfect in your life. It's this. Because your calling in life is that you will suffer. As Christians, we need to be prepared for this. We need to, to be aware that this is what's coming down the chute. You have been called to suffer. Why? 
for the sake of Christ. Keep looking at verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. You see, Christ suffered for you. This is why we as Christians are called to suffer. See, the word here is example, that Jesus is our example. This Greek word was used to refer to the pattern of letters of the alphabet that children would trace over as they were learning how to spell. This example in, in the English language is kind of weak, actually. In a more, little, more literal sense, this word should be stencil. That Jesus is your stencil in life. You know what I'm talking about? Like when I was a kid, we had these like plastic stencils they're, they're like hard plastic, so like you could try as hard as you can, but you're not going to go outside the lines. That's what Jesus is meant to be like. It's not this general uh, example that you follow in, in, in a general, you know, wishy-washy kind of way. Jesus is the, the pattern, the stencil for your life to be followed. That he guides every area of your life. Now, how exactly did Jesus live? Now, Peter frames this up precisely to cater to the situation that his original audience is, is facing. He says that Jesus endured while he unjustly suffered. But because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Here's his steps. That he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he continued in trusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. See, Jesus always did good. Even when he could have retaliated, he refrained from doing that. He was long-suffering. He, did, he didn't just put up with, with this nonsense for a little while. He gave his whole life to it all the way up to the end where he himself bore our sins on a tree. That's how long-suffering Jesus was. He didn't just tolerate it. He himself took it in and took it upon himself. What a gracious thing, that Jesus would shoulder our sins, that he would take our burden from us. You see, Jesus acknowledged that this sin stuff is going to ruin you. There was no mincing of words there. Like there's, there, the analogy that Jesus uses here, this life and death, like he said, sin is going to kill you. And instead of letting the gates of hell hit us on the rear on our way in, Jesus dealt with that for us. That he bore our sins in his body. He paid the price for our sins. He shouldered the consequences for our failures. That he was wounded so that we can be restored. See, our wounds aren't just dealt with, aren't, aren't like, it's okay. It's all right, I forgive them. They're fixed. See, God, Jesus not only pulls us up from the grave and saves us from death, but he credits us with his righteousness by grace through faith. And it's those who are deemed righteous on account of the work of Christ that we are actually enabled to live a righteous life. 
that we can do good as Christ directs us. See, but what Christ offers to us is already available right now. His mercy will meet you where you're at, whether you believe for the first time or you are, convict, are feeling convicted of the way that you sin against your boss. You don't need to fix it first before you come to Jesus. Jesus has done that. This is what Peter is getting at here in verse, verse 25. He says, by his wounds you were healed, for you were strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. He says, your wounds have been healed. That is past tense. That Jesus, it's because Jesus has scars that you can be certain that all of your sin has been dealt with. You've been healed. In verse 26, when he says that, that you've been returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls, he's showing us this transformative property of mercy, that it finds us while we were wandering away, but God has brought us in once again. That you were once wayward in your sin, you were off being unjust, you were sinning against your boss in whatever arena that is, but by Christ's work you've been found, you've been sought out, you've been pursued. You've been brought back into God's fold, just like a, a wandering lamb has gone off looking for greener pastures and, and have found none. God has brought you to true green pastures. See, this is the gracious thing that Christ has done for you. This is his mercy in your life. So let this mercy meet you where you're at. Let it transform you to Christ-likeness. Follow the guide. Follow the stencil of Christ. Lean into God's grace so that it will make you a more gracious person. Now, just for a moment, as just, just imagine what it'd be like if we are these people who are suffering unjustly, we're, we're going to work, and it's, it's hardship after hardship. Just imagine this the sort of impact this could have on our city. Imagine what the normal grind, going to work, being a servant, respecting your boss, and imagine the sort of impact that this could have. First of all, your boss gets a taste of God's mercy. Like, Just imagine how your work culture dynamics would shift if your boss were to come to know who Christ is. Just think of the transformation that could take place, right? Because you're giving him a taste of God's mercy or her. But then just imagine the mission ammunition that becomes available. If your boss were, were to, to come to faith in Christ, become a part of a, a family on mission, Think of the, the impact that their influence and financial abilities would have on, on, on this church body, on our city, if those mission resources were put to work. You see, this is how we transform our city in normal, daily ways. You go to work, you forbear with your boss, you become a servant. And you're gracious. But the only way to do that is to first experience the grace of Christ. Father, we thank you.
that you deal so graciously with us. We thank you for your mercy that we do not deserve, yet you seek us out. Sheep that have gone astray, you have brought us back in. Father, I pray that you transform us into people who are radically gracious, even to the degree where we can suffer well, even at the hands of unjust employers. Father, would you renew this city through the faithful, ordinary acts of mercy of your people, that we would be part of a revival in this church, in this city, to see the glory of God, the mercy of Jesus, the grace of our King displayed for all to see, available to any who will come. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.